1: I'm Samuel Mann in Soyers Bay, Dunedin. I don't have him wear a tie with me today, but I do have Ross McDonald, Dr. Ross McDonald, who is the Director of Sustainability at a Tago Polytechnic Teepook Kia Kira Ross.
2: Kira Sam, lovely to be with you.
1: We'll get used to putting the Teepook Hanger on the end of it eventually.
2: Indeed. <laughs> Just in
1: time for us to drop putting a Tago Polytech on the first bit. So Ross, we've been asking people about their bubble life. We started the show at the start of the first lockdown. I know it's starting to turn into prehistory now, but how was your bubble life?
2: My bubble life was wonderful. Actually, it was absolutely brilliant. Um, it came along at a strange time for me because I'd been working at the University of Auckland for many years, uh, teaching there in sustainability and ethics and social responsibility and so forth, and running effectively two courses a semester and then summer school, and that meant a pretty relentless focus on teaching because you finish one course, do all the paperwork, get the grades out, and then you're setting up the next one. So for three three. three years prior to um, lockdown happening, I'd been pretty much nose to the grindstone um, with very little time for other pursuits and for family and friends and so forth. So when lockdown came, I actually finished my last iteration of summer school uh, just about a week or so before lockdown officially happened. So for me, having decided to tender my resignation at that point, um, I found myself back in the Coromandel where I was living on 14 acres of bush. And suddenly going to the city was impossible. Um, my work had ceased. I had no email account to the university, so I wasn't having this in-flood of things to do, with small tasks. And so suddenly it became a wide open period of um, being with friends and family in a corner of paradise. So for me, it was absolutely magnificent. It was perfectly timed.
1: You couldn't have timed that better.
2: <laughs> Indeed. I wish I could take credit for it, but... <laughs>
1: I wonder how it would have played out if it hadn't been for that. Would you have found yourself sort of sneaking back to work earlier?
2: I think I would have been pulled into a lot of lingering commitments. Um, There were a few things that still needed to be worked through. There were revisions of programs, little bits of teaching and so forth. But that door was slammed closed as soon as the um, lockdown went and as soon as we couldn't cross the Bombay Hills. So I was sort of locked out of that immediately. Um, So it was it removed all of that pressure of thinking, well, maybe I should be tying up these loose ends because the loose ends were left as loose ends at that point and sort of terminated.
1: And so you decided to leave that corner of paradise and come to a different corner of paradise. What brought you to Dunedin?
2: Uh, Well, I think when I finished in Auckland, a a large part of that was wanting to have more time, but uh, particularly more time with family. Um, At the time, we had um, a nine-year-old child that we sort of adopted from the extended family um, due to some difficulties in that corner of the whanau, and he, he really needed a lot of attention and I was the person who had the free time while everybody else was working and it was our youngest son and his girlfriend at the time's last year in high school and so having kids that your time with them goes very very quickly and so I really wanted to spend that final part um, of our boys time at home in some sort of quality time spend good time with them Uh, so from from that angle it was just absolutely brilliant um, that period sort of changed. I had two years of working on a large property, lots of bits of building, sort of gardening, getting things sorted. Um, but then after a while, you know, if you live in the bush, you tend to go a bit bucolic on things. <laughs> and um, and I found myself um, having a, a, a sort of lack of stimulation in terms of um, the intellectual side of things, getting to grips with the issues that I really cared about in a professional capacity. Um, so after two years of running down my savings and living um, a sort of life tilted towards the work side um, of the work-life balance, uh, I decided that it was time to rejoin the fray in the area of sustainability and um, get my sleeves rolled up again and come down to Otago to pick up uh, this Director of Sustainability position. So that brought me back to Dunedin. I'd actually lived in Dunedin um, for a long time, 20 odd years ago or so. Um, So it's kind of a return and in some ways a return to my Scottish roots, given that um, Dunedin is such a a Scottish town
1: (laughs) So what does the Director of Sustainability do?
2: Uh, The Director of Sustainability uh, pulls together all of the various strands of action that people are engaged in at the Polytech Um, I think the Polytechnic has done a magnificent job in the past in terms of um, pushing the envelope on a lot of fronts, but to this point, it's not really been um, held in a coherent way across the various dimensions of that task. So the moment, for example, we've got a lot of um, work on curriculum, teaching, um, developing frameworks, um, but also dealing with our actual physical impact. So what our emissions profiles are and so forth. And that's becoming a much larger part of um, our kind of focus, mainly because as we align ourselves with things like the carbon neutral government programme, those set fairly strict targets for us and a fairly steep path of reduction if we were to meet net zero goals that we've set for ourselves by 2030. Um, so there's a whole <laughs> bunch of things going up going on in those spaces, a lot of background work, a lot of work with Tupukenga as we join into a national network and try and influence larger policies rather than just our own organisation's policies. Um, And then there are the sort of day-to-day projects that people have around the polytechnic that um, we try, we're increasingly trying to bring together under a coherent umbrella with a bit of strategic
1: direction to it. It's interesting how we've battled for so long on things like travel. It is is the is an interesting one because it was always the the rock that academics would rather people not look under. Yeah. And because because academics kind of have to travel. Yep. But it turns out over the last 3 years that we don't have to travel as much as we thought we did.
2: Indeed. Indeed, that's absolutely right.
1: But we still probably do need to travel. We probably, you know, less than we were before. But it's pretty, it's turned out it is pretty difficult to maintain that sort of international academic connection entirely remotely.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think there's a real balance to be struck there. I think formerly we had it tilted too far in the direction of people travelling to meetings internationally that they really didn't need to attend. Um, being in the university sector particularly, that's where um, it's much more of a live issue than in the polytech sector. Um, But there was an ethos for a long time of sort of, um, it's sort of write a paper, win a trip, as a, as a kind of logic and it's no surprise that the meetings internationally are held in places like Venice and Los Angeles and places that people really want to go not necessarily because the atmosphere there is encouraging high intellectual labour um, but because it allows all sorts of pleasant side trips to be engaged with and while it's important to network in those circumstances I think we're picking up more and more skills these days that allow us to fluidly connect and network with others in a virtual way and given the um, rather parlous state of our environment at the moment the more we can dial down unnecessary travel then the more we avoid those emissions and we can actually um, stand on solid moral ground in terms of having the right to push for changes elsewhere I think positive change always begins at home
1: especially if you're going to a conference about climate change
2: uh, yeah, yes, indeed.
1: <laughs> Let's take the first of your music choices. Let's have Sane for now. Sort the ship out. Why this one?
2: Uh, this one, because one of the things that I did during lockdown that I'd really been looking forward to was get creative with music. Uh, so this is um, a song that I recorded just right at the beginning of lockdown um, as one of the first of many pieces that I put together in a tin shed at the bottom of the section. <laughs> <laughs>
0: the ship pants
1: I was all lined up to ask you how you got into sustainability, but I'm going to ask about your music first. What got you into music?
2: What got me into music? That's a tough question. Um, I I was raised in a musically appreciative family. Uh, My parents didn't play any instruments themselves, but they were always listening to music. And when we were kids, they were... um, Encouraging dash tolerant of our cranking very loud music from the lounge room of a weekend and an evening. Uh, My brother fortunately broke the way with some really um, challenging music in the sense of sort of glam heavy metal stuff that he was into and my parents never ever complained about that and um, so I got a good musical education from my brother um, and appreciation from my family but it was also um, quite a musical scene in Scotland in terms of people to play with. So I found that that combination of playing music and socializing to be um, just a wonderful thing in terms of expression and creative meetings of minds. And since I was a teenager, I've always been playing music with people sort of here and there. So it's been a long a long term interest. But I think in terms of lockdown, I found that rather than engaging in the constantly verbose sort of um, activities that you're inevitably drawn into when you're teaching and writing, um, that music was a great option of being able to express myself in much shorter, more concise ways. Um, and so I really enjoyed that transition. I found myself being able to blurt out in very short periods what was on my mind without having it in, a, in the form of a three-page paper. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and the question about sustainability, what got you there?
2: I think when, the, when I was growing up, I always had a great affinity with nature. I grew up in a small fishing village in Scotland. And from when I was a kid, I was just charmed by the variety of bird life around the place and animal life and so being um, of a certain generation whenever the sun was shining for us we got kicked out of the house and our parents basically said come back at dinner time and so we were forced out without phones or devices or anything like that into nature and so we would find ourselves immersed in nature most of the time and I became really interested in it and um, and found it to be good for the soul. Um, but also coming from a family that was very much concerned with social justice. Uh, my parents were very active in the community and supporting organisations around. Um, the dinner time conversations around the table were always about the rights and wrongs of the world. And that combination of being really interested and resonating with the natural world and having a sense that one ought to do the right thing and push for the right thing um, kind of drew me, I think, more and more into sustainability as an area of active engagement where essential things need to be addressed and we need to be fighting for positive change.
1: It's interesting, sometimes you see people bemoaning the connection between that sort of nature and social justice you know i'd be able to support the green movement if only they would just stick to to thinking caring about the trees what's all the social justice stuff doing in here Mm. and for me and i suspect for you they're, they're inseparable
2: Yeah, I I think they are. um, I don't quite understand how people segment the world in in those ways. To me, it's in large part about expanding our boundaries of consideration so that we move beyond just thinking of ourselves and our narrow self-interest to begin to think of broader constituencies. Um, And just in the same way as one might pick up a product in the supermarket that is terrible for the environment, um, without thinking about that broader constituency, in similar ways, we can pick up products that are exploitative in terms of their supply chain um, impositions on our fellows elsewhere. And to me, they involve similar ethical, moral um, bases. That it's all about overcoming our small mindedness and our narrow mindedness and our short sightedness to come up, to become bigger in the way that we relate to the world. And that includes being more considerate of nature and more considerate of those who are struggling more than we are. It's sort of a, a broad compassion and empathy that I don't think it's useful to discriminate between um, ourselves and the living world, which we are undoubtedly part of. I think it's simplistic to see things in such divisive ways like that.
1: And that's the challenge in terms of educating for sustainable practice, for sustainable practitioners, is that what we want the learners to do, what we want our graduates to do, is that become bigger in their thinking that expand the the boundaries but that's real hard to reduce down to a here's the set of behaviors that we want you to do
2: yeah, it is. And it should never be reduced down to that. I think that's the, um, the the simplest way of approaching it. And it's kind of managerialism in a lot of ways. It makes things easy to assess. It makes forms easy to fill out and tick. Um, but in reducing things down to such concrete aspects, I think we lose the fact that responsibility is a very subtle and complex and fluid um, thing. And that is, when we think about education, I mean, the real meaning of education in terms of its root meaning is um, to bring out from within. So to educe is to bring forth from within. And we have this simplistic idea, which is kind of Victorian notion of education, that we just, should just cram things into people's heads, um, sets of values, sets of behaviours that they ought to be engaging with, And particularly if you're dealing with young people quite rightly young people have a reluctance to um, be told what to do by their elders and it is much more constructive if we understand education as being a process of bringing out our higher potential so when it comes to sustainability and social justice bringing out our compassion our empathy our ability to understand things integratively and that demands a form of education which I think is deeply reflective and not easily amenable to the standard measures of success. But <clears throat> Even though it's more complex, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't attempt it um, and that, in fact, we shouldn't require it as part of the educational process. And that means we have to change some of our fundamental systems and the way we appraise and assure learning, for example. These things have to change. And it's a big challenge, but it's a humanising challenge and a necessary challenge at this point. So I think it requires that we think in quite radically different ways about what it is we are trying to accomplish and how we go about doing that.
1: So if you imagine a lecturer in a field which you would think isn't immediately the concern of sustainability, well, you and I might think that they all are, but, but you can understand why people might think that they're coming to it from a different field. Yep. But what they want to know is, well, so what do I teach? Mm-hmm. What do you and and what else do you want me to put into the curriculum?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's that's the, that's and, the major problem.
1: So, how are you approaching that?
2: Um, I'm approaching it by not falling into the trap of thinking that sustainability ought to be a different box that is added on to an existing curriculum. <clears throat> so, for example, if you are in a construction program that you do all the hands on construction stuff, and then you have a token week of addressing the sustainable development goals. For example, the approach um, I'm I'm using is to integrate it into existing programmes and wrap it around those programmes. Because I think what the challenge is, is for us to empower people to practice their profession with a sustainable consciousness and around all of the specifics of the skills that are necessary to be a builder or a carpenter for example we have to make sure that that is placed within a broader context so in terms of advice to specific lecturers it would be around how you can place the profession within the unfolding realities of the larger world that we operate in And particularly important in that, I think, is getting people to think in a little bit of a longer term perspective. So to think in 10, 20 year time horizons of how things are going to be in terms of a variety of options that at the moment range from disaster to paradise In terms of what we can do then to encourage um, good debate, good discussion, good deepening um, deliberations around what the proper place of, in this case, a builder would be in a world that's running out of resources. Where weather is getting more extreme and where there are sort of increasing indications of social polarization. So, it's to the challenge to lecturers is to make their subject area and specialization uh, related to and integrated into uh, the broader dynamics of the world. Bubble sprite of the forest of Arakanui, favorite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie.
3: Kia ora koutou, nami aroha nui kia koutou koutou. Ho, ho. All have a blessed day, beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. And I really hope wherever you are, whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're on together is proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining, and illuminating for you more each day. Who you are the triumph of nature's heart, perfect, unique, and here making things better. Thank you. Now, I know that for us all, the long. more than three years have been very difficult. And for all of us, we've had to go through so much change and transformation, transition, turmoil, trials and tribulations, all of this alliteration. And of course, there's so much that we cannot put into words, but we can try. And I know for us all, there is so much grief, there is so much that we are missing, there's so much that is irrevocably gone. And yet there's so much to be grateful for. There's so much that remains. There's so much that we can reclaim and recover alongside our strength, our sense of hope, our sense of connection, our sense of belonging, our sense of oneness, our sense of homecoming. All of these feelings are mixed together and it's a fascinating time to be alive and a really dynamic landscape we're moving through together. Of course having experienced this journey globally as one of course i would hope that there could be a sense of a shared experience and that this shared experience could be a level for us all and a way to move forward a new way that better serve us collectively i know for myself my sense of appreciation and gratitude for the times when we have been able to come together and the times when we have been able to connect very creatively when we haven't been able to come together in person has really grown and for me now an Ōti Potista need and that we are frolicking about more freely again I'm so grateful for these times when we are able to come forward come together with shared goals and shared aspirations And I really hope for you, you're having the opportunity to experience in your own life with your own community. I know for me, having this time again with the young people, um, the rakatahi at the schools here and in learning environments here in Aote Porte, is such a gift. I'm so grateful for that time. I had a beautiful day-to-day visiting East Tahere School and really enjoying celebrating biodiversity and the precious and unique and perfect and special gifts that each life forms here to share. We really enjoyed meeting lots of the beautiful Rāko the native trees at the school and mapping them and celebrating all the gifts that they're sharing and creating treasure maps showing where the different trees are around the school. And then I had a wonderful meeting with the Wildlife Fossil Dream Team. We're going to be doing some education programs together. Then a beautiful time at the museum in the tropical forest. And then a wonderful art auction to benefit my heart's so Home workplace, Orokonui. And then seeing lots of people out and about. And of course, this is the joy and the pleasure that we can experience. Once again, to be reunited to find again this welcoming and inviting world so i really hope for you as things are easing and moving back towards that lifestyle that we were so accustomed to you're finding a very warm and supportive and encouraging ecosystem and you're feeling that your contribution and your unique gifts are really being appreciated and celebrated
1: and i look forward to talking to you again
3: Thanks so
1: much. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles, we're talking with Ross McDonald. Talking ecosystems. What do we need to do to get system change? Can we get there incrementally? Can we get there by adding bits to education or is it a transformation?
2: I believe it's probably a bit of both, but it's, it heads much more towards a transformation. Um, I think that over the past three decades that I've been teaching in this area, when I began, it would have been possible to make small steps because we had the time to do it. What we've done in the meantime is we've kicked the can so far down the road and we are so close to um, very serious consequences if we don't change quite radically now that we are much more in need of quite radical transformations because any system of business as usual only operates if the constituent parts are operating as usual. So business as usual requires politics as usual and it requires education as usual. If we are to change the way we think about our place in the order of things, Uh, We need to rapidly and quickly and quite uh, fundamentally change the practices that we are engaged in at the moment to be of service to a generation who's going to be facing realistically numerous traumas as we go forward. So at this point, we can't be fiddling around with small changes that keep the system intact. We have to rise up to the challenge of retooling ourselves and operating in ways which are truly empowering for a generation that needs to create change and quite fundamental change. Um, But I think in many ways it returns us to some earlier models of education. I mean, I think, for example, of when I went through an educational process um, and got my degrees in the UK and the States, most of it was based upon really deep explorations of topics and curricula that had space in them for reflection and where you could follow the learners interests. But now we've got processes that are so bureaucratized that every course has to outline what it's going to be teaching in particular dates and segments and how that relates to the assessment process. And it's not responsive enough to actually take on board the interests and the passions and the views of the learners themselves. They're sort of partialed out of a process which is so top heavy that it it, it it continues largely to impose worldviews on people rather than bring out their own worldview and nurture unique and alternative and creative ways of thinking. And I think we have to get over that. And that's a challenge for um, those teaching in the tertiary sector, where in some instances people are reluctant to acknowledge that their students might have as good ideas as they do. On how we might act to create a better future.
1: When we started this show, we made the deliberate decision to to have it positive. Yes. Um, and then, uh, and and then we recognised that had that positive was not about being deluded. It was not just let's just hunker down in our bubbles and pretend nothing's happening. So we need yeah. that sort of critical reality in it. And then after a while. But actually, about a year ago, somebody convinced us that we need to be a little bit deluded. We need to have that that ability to have that kind of imagination and that vision and, and so on. And that makes you think about the decisions that we made when we were first starting to move towards sustainable practice at the Polytech. And we made the deliberate decision not to front load with doom is how we described it when we were doing lectures on or, or talking to, to, to staff and students, we didn't want a whole PowerPoint on, you know, showing the the hockey stick graphs or whatever it might be about how how terrible everything is. Yep. And I think, and I, I still think that that's worked, that that has worked really well, that, that not many people actually need convincing of the need. But more recently, Extinction Rebellion and others have come in and said, actually we do that this is a this is such an emergency that the time has passed for being nice about it mm. do we need to make that shift in education again
2: I think we have to be very careful about how we do it. Um, I think people have different thresholds on how much bad news they can take before they recoil into defensiveness that can range in a a whole number of different ways from denial into more, more subtle forms. Uh, It's not useful to cross that line because then you don't make any progress. But I believe we need to push it as close to that line as we can, because complacency is probably our biggest enemy in this space. The idea that things will fix themselves or that there will be a magical intervention by technology. And even that language is really interesting. You know, it's I I have worked with a lot of young people in a lot of different contexts, and it is so common for people to say technology will save us as if it's an independent force that will come in as some form of divine intervention and save us Um, when we exist in those states, we become passive. And that's of, of no use at all because then then we are we just walk straight into um increasing problems. I think again it sort of relates to us kicking the can down the road. Uh, there was reason to be much more hopeful two decades ago or one decade ago than there is now. So it was a more more appropriate perhaps to leave people in that space. But now, as we get really close to very um, upsetting consequences, we have to ask ourselves whether it's better to be um, sheltered from those potential outcomes beforehand or whether we need to experience them before we go, this is a problem. So I think, for example, of people living in Westport, If you're living in Westport and you get a heavy rain warning, it's got to have a sort of deeply disturbing effect on you. And I've heard so many people um, comment in the media, you know, these are people who get flooded out saying we had no idea that this would happen. But in fact, for 20 years, it's been fairly apparent that that's going to happen. And maybe for those folks, it would have been better to face up to some of the upsetting news, because if you're upset about something, you're motivated to do something about it. Um, And I think at the moment, we've got to be careful not to shelter people from things that they need to know. It's sort of like someone on the verge of alcoholism. As a doctor, you don't want to be saying everything's fine. At some point, you've got to say to the person, if you continue drinking, my friend, this is what's going to happen to you. And it's going to be upsetting and seem um, dark. But in order to change it and have a more positive outcome, you need sometimes to face up to the consequences of inaction.
1: Thinking about Westport and and rivers, it's a wholesale rethink of our relationship with the environment that supports us. Because we think that rivers don't move. One of my favourite sets of images, diagrams, is the meandering maps of the Mississippi that right. somebody went out and worked out, you know, over this vast area, where did the Mississippi used to be?
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so, do we need to be moving to a a wholesale rethink about our understanding of where we live in terms of it being this benign, static place with the occasional disruption? But actually, it's a moving place, you know, taking those concepts of VUCA, the volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous, and thinking about that more broadly.
2: Mm. I think there's a real need to connect in the sense that we understand the larger and um, sort of longer term processes that we're embedded in. So when I was teaching in Auckland, I used to say to people, you know, when you sit down by the on the beach by the ocean, it's helpful just to realise and to actually feel and sense that that ocean is rising. It's a living thing and it is changing. And when you look at it, you've got to understand conceptually how that movement works. And I think undoubtedly, as we move forward, we're going to move into um more extreme times in terms of weather events. Those are already becoming apparent to us. And it is going to shift our sense of certainty. So property owners, for example, are now having to think quite carefully about how where they wish to buy is going to fare in 15, 20 years time. You know, if you're paying a mortgage for a property over that time, it begins to change the rubric and insurance companies, of course, are beginning to lead the way on that because that's where the money lies and insurance companies for a long time have been in the forefront in business of actually predicting what's going to happen and taking it seriously. But I think for the population it becomes, it's a real challenge and one of the reasons why we are not engaging with it to the extent that we should. So parents, for example, I mean, you think of how the world is going to be under various scenarios, the old models of stability and certainty are changing. And I think that's something we've really got to wrap our heads around because it has enormous implications for our economies, for example. And we assume certain things are going to continue, like dairying, for example. Um, and it's not only the political pressure that's coming on dairying, it's an environmental issue. Um, how many droughts can you have in Canterbury and keep dairying at the level that it is? You know? So I think it, everything's
1: up in the air at the moment and beginning to wobble. Maybe the disruptions to people's education over the last couple of years will be the the nail in the coffin of a belief in certainty. You know, mm-hmm. the, the the generation that's going through education now, the people graduating now, have spent less than half of that half of their degree in the quotes classroom. Yep. and and it must be changing how they're thinking about their expectations of their careers and and their their professions
2: yeah, and I think it's one of the things we haven't really paid that much attention to. Um, I, I mean, one of the things that's apparent in this, this, some of the studies that have been done uh, of young people's attitudes is that they do look at the future as being much more uncertain. They don't expect long careers, for example. Um, they've got little sense of a secure house and mortgage and staying in the one place as we used to have. Um, the whole nature of economy I mean, you think of the debt that's been piled up during lockdowns as, as major economies tried to shield themselves from the short term impacts. That's all going to create a great deal of uncertainty going forward because there are all sorts of assumptions of stable economic growth being able to pay off massive levels of indebtedness that I don't think young folks really bind themselves to in the way that we have who grew up in periods that are much more stable. Um, So I think the the world is much more in flux for young folks. I think they're probably more attuned to that than the older generation are.
1: So long as they can do it, that with a sense of agency and empowerment and not despair.
2: Yeah, 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 exactly. And I actually think looking forward that that's where the hope is and that that's where the major dynamic is going to be. We've sort of traditionally worked on left wing and right wing and centrist policies or, or sort of divisions of a political nature. I think in the next 10 years or so, the major action is going to be a generational difference. I think young people are going to um, refuse to accept a lot of the impositions that have been put on them by our generation as we try and extend our indulgence and our privilege. You know, we've kicked the property ladder out from under young folks in probably a fairly permanent way. Um, We have violated a lot of their opportunities and put them in debt. And I think young folks at some point are going to refuse to take that on. And I think that's the point at which we will get major system change as a younger generation realises this model that served you folks is actually not in our interest and we have to change it. And things like the climate movement have been, um, I think, indications of how powerful young folks can be when they come together and when they raise their voice and I think we're going to see
1: more and more and more and more of that as we go and that's a hugely positive thing. You and I both studied in Lincoln, Nebraska.
2: Ah right okay I didn't realise that.
1: Do you think that well Lincoln's relatively liberal Mm. but the rest of Nebraska isn't? Oh no no. no. (laughs) Do you think that that's do you think that that kind of change is going to get through to that kind of you know not not extreme, but th- th- there's a, there's a lot of people in places like that, yep. for whom this is a that that would be a really really big change. Yep,
2: yep. I think um, America is uh, it's kind of a, a an interesting case at the moment because I think they're experiencing the end of their empire, and the amount of division now between um, blue and red constituencies, and the fact that they find it increasingly difficult to even communicate with one another creates, I think, a uniquely American problem. Um, and as you will know from spending time in the Midwest, folks really aren't very outward looking. American press deals only with America, really. It doesn't real deal with the rest of the world. So Americans in that context are often quite naive globally. So I think what will play out in America will be their own karma. They will reap the harvest of what they have sown over the last decade, particularly. Um, I, I think eventually, however, um, the realities of climate change will become apparent. I mean, the, the, the Midwest has been in a series of droughts, there's a mega drought in the far west. Those things become undeniable at a certain point. You know, how many seasons can you watch your crop corn wither? and continue to believe that nothing's changed. Um, So I think those attitudes will slowly change, but there's an older generation there who are so set in their ways as there is around the world that I don't think they're going to be able to change until they shuffle off the mortal coil. Um, But the young people who are coming through looking to their own future, I think that's a common, going to be a common global theme of people looking forward 30, 40 years, which someone in their 60s and 70s is not going to do, but a young person will. And I think that change will come from the younger generation rather than the, the older generation in those parts of the world, particularly.
1: I have some questions to end the show and not very much time. So we're going to have to wriggle. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years?
2: The biggest success I've had, um, I wouldn't actually put it in a professional sense. I would say the biggest success I've had is helping um, the young person I was mentioning earlier who, who was living with us during lockdown um, get back on the rails from from sort of heading out of a problematic family situation to becoming um, really functional and being able to go to school, picking up reading and writing and all of that sort of stuff. So in terms of real impact and stuff that I think was successful, um, I would I would say that's the, that's probably the most meaningful one.
1: So we are writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. Ah. So you are in that team, you're in the mansion. What's your superpower? Ah.
2: My superpower? Uh, My superpower would be (laughs) humour.
1: So so do you consider yourself to be an activist?
2: Uh, Yes, definitely. Definitely so. Um, I'm active in primarily an area that tries to kill activism, i.e. in the heart of a bureaucracy. Um, But if there's anywhere where activists are needed, it's in that inactivist zone.
1: That's a good description. So what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning?
2: Uh, Coffee. (laughs) Coffee. Uh, But in terms of what motivates me, it is um, really wanting to see us find our way to a balanced, humane, decent, happy, peaceful world.
1: Not a small ask, then.
2: Not a small ask. (laughs) Well, we all chip away at the clay feet, you know.
1: (laughs) So what is the biggest challenge or opportunity that you see in the next year or so?
2: Uh, The biggest opportunity, I think, is to have a really significant impact on the way sustainability is accepted and put at the centre of Tipukenga's operations. Uh, Tipukenga, in bringing together so many discrete organisations, becomes one of the larger educational institutions in the world. And so the potential reach of a strategy that is done well, influencing a generation, and in New Zealand, a generation that I think is pretty clear thinking. Um, I think there are enormous opportunities there. So in terms of the biggest challenge and the biggest opportunity, it would be in shaping educational policy positively within that very large network.
1: And you're in an interesting place, a good place, because... Otago Polytechnic is leading, if if not the leader, of sustainability across the Tūpūkenga network.
2: Yes, absolutely, and, and at the moment the, the the task really is to push through layers of centralising bureaucracy, so that we can continue to lead in that space in a larger context.
1: And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners?
2: Uh, Advice for listeners, um, do something worthwhile and helpful on a daily basis, even if it's a tiny thing. If you can be of assistance to somebody, um, be of assistance to somebody. One of the things that I was very um, interested in and conscious of when I worked with the Bhutanese government, because I worked for quite a long time on their policies of maximising gross national happiness as opposed to gross national product, um, is the huge literature that shows if you want to be well and feel good, then it is enormously helpful to be helpful so for example there's lots of studies where you give people a certain amount of money say 30 bucks and you say to half of the people go and spend this 30 bucks on yourself And you say to the other half of the people, go and spend this 30 bucks on somebody else. And when you do follow up things, the people who do things for others, who take someone to the movies, who buy flowers for somebody, those kind of things, they are so much happier than the folks who just spend it on themselves. And I think we miss the point that a a really genuine sense of well-being and purpose and thriving comes from positively contributing to others' lives. And our dominant culture tends to suggest that we should just focus on ourselves, Um, but that really is hollow compared with being of use to others. So I would encourage people to habitually and consciously do something good for someone else today and tomorrow and the next day. And it's a recipe for building not only our own humanity, but the humanity of our
1: communities. Thank you very much for that. Thank you very much. That is such good advice. Thank you very much for joining me today.
2: Oh, it's great to talk to you, Sam. I appreciate that very much, eh?
4: I feel your love I feel time is up When I was a child a transient hut The water's the shell and we are the knot The ties or a hand or a child of the barrel
1: listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic, which is brought to you by Tipu Poo We're broadcast on Otago Access Radio every Monday, Wednesday and Friday afternoons at three and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook. We have a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. This is Aldous Harding, The Barrel. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyers Bay, Dunedin, and I've been joined by Dr. Ross McDonald, the Director of Sustainability at Otario Polytechnic in pookanger That was Blowing Bubbles. We hope you enjoyed the show. Party 1.